to take out your Bibles and turn to John chapter 13. John 13, beginning in verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's end the reading of God's holy word. Please receive it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the great love that you have loved us with. We thank you for sending your Son into the world, that we may have a perfect example of what love is. We pray that as we reflect on the life of Christ, that we would truly model his love. Lord, bind us together as your people. May we love one another as Christ has loved us. And through this, may the world know that we are his disciples. We thank you again for your incomparable gift of love that you sent your son into the world to die for our sins and to rise again. Father, I pray now that you would bless the proclamation of your word. May we grow in love, in understanding, in appreciation for all that you've done for us. And may we grow ever more into Christ's likeness. In the name of our Savior and Mediator, we pray. Amen. So we're continuing in John and chapter 13. Uh, we are in the upper room uh, with Jesus and his disciples here now on the evening uh, where Jesus will be betrayed and arrested. Now there's been a shift, there's been a bit of a change in the atmosphere. Uh, Jesus was troubled, we saw last week, as he turned his attention to his betrayer. Uh, but now that G Judas has left and has gone into the night to betray the Lord, Jesus is left now only with those whom he said are clean, back in verse 10. So while his soul had been troubled a moment ago, with the departure of Judas now, Jesus shifts his attention to speak of his glorification. Let's read from verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Now we've seen throughout John's Gospel, this theme has been repeated. Christ has spoken again and again of his glorification. Remember John began his account by foreshadowing this? The Word became flesh. We celebrate Christmas time. The Word became flesh, and we have seen His glory. And we've seen glimpses of it throughout the Gospel of John, as Jesus has given little insights into who He is, little displays of His power. But we see now, Jesus declares, is the time that the Son of Man will be glorified. Now we will see revealed 
that which has been hinted at, alluded to. The Son of Man will be glorified. And so here again, Christ uses what is really his favorite title for himself in the Gospels. He refers to himself as Son of Man more than any other term. And this is especially fitting for him to use when talking about his glory, uh, particularly if we remember what was the Old Testament background for this title. Now the term Son of Man can be a way of simply referring to a human being made in God's image. Uh, God frequently refers to Ezekiel as Son of Man in this way. But as a messianic title, uh, as a description of the Messiah, it is likely taken from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, which says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So we see this prophecy is of one like a son of man, being glorified, exalted, given rule, dominion, and authority. It is an image of a triumphant and exalted one being rewarded, now receiving a kingdom to be served by all nations, peoples, and languages. And in a stunning twist, what was a dramatic departure from what the Jews in Jesus' day and even his own disciples expected, the path that Jesus would take to this glorification would be the path of suffering. In fact, the way that John's Gospel speaks of it, the cross itself, is part of the glorification of the Son of Man. But they are inseparably joined, intertwined. The suffering is part of his glorification, his exaltation. As Jesus had said, the Son of Man was going to be lifted up. We've seen that was both literal and figurative. He was lifted up on the cross. So, we see that this exalted, kingdom-receiving Son of Man of Daniel 7, what's revealed to us now is that this Son of Man, this exalted Son of Man, is also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The one who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And so when Jesus says that the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, all of this is in view, both his suffering and his subsequent exaltation. Verse 32. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So God will be glorified in Jesus, that is, God will be honored, he'll be glorified through Christ's obedience. As Jesus has said again and again, he is going to die. Jesus is going to die in the place of sinners. And this was the will of his Father. This is why he was sent, to come and to save. As the angel announced to Mary, or to Joseph rather, you shall call his name Jesus, 
for he will save his people from their sins. Now we looked recently at Philippians 2, the section known as the Carmen Christi, or the hymn to Christ. There we see God the Son emptied himself, became a man, took the form of a servant, and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This was the will of the Father, that Christ would come to be the Savior. And so if the Son would glorify the Father this way through this obedience, then we see, too, the second part of our verse, the Father will glorify the Son. And he will do so at once, not merely some far-off time at the end of history, but will happen right away, likely referring to the resurrection and ascension and his return to the Father. We see Philippians 2 puts it this way as well. Uh, as the result of Christ's obedience, his glorifying of the Father, the result is this in Philippians 2 verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Son would glorify the Father in his obedience, and so the Father would glorify the Son, and would do so at once. Verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So through this section, through this upper room discourse, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. He is going to die, and then even after he's raised, he will depart again, for he will return to the Father who sent him. Now, as Jesus had told the Jews where he was going, namely to the Father, they could not come. They could not follow. But the tone of Jesus to his disciples is very different. Right? When he had told the Jews, you will search for me, but you will die in your sins. Jesus rebukes the unbelieving Jews. But through this discourse, Christ is seeking to comfort his disciples with many precious promises and gives them instructions on how they are to live while he is gone. We see one of those instructions. Verse 34. A new command, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, I'm sure you've heard the Bible speak of love before. Um, so this raises a question. In what sense is this a new commandment? Right? Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. Well, a common answer is that this is a new commandment. Uh, a common answer in evangelical circles is to say, that love wasn't commanded by God's law. And so now, Jesus has done away with the law and replaced it with his own new commandment, that of love. And while that might provide the excuse that some people are looking for to avoid reading the Old Testament, that answer falls flat. For the fact is, God's law did command love. Love for God and love for neighbor. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5 you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Leviticus 19, 18. 
You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So you see that love for God and love for neighbor are not new commandments. Right? Jesus didn't invent them. Rather, he is quoting from the law when he says this. In fact, Jesus had told us that love for God and love for neighbor was the summary of the law. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The next answer some will suggest is that through Jesus' example, we now see that love for neighbor needs to include even our enemies. Right? As if God's law did not command enemy love, but now Jesus does. But we see that this too was already commanded in God's law. If you remember our series on Exodus, we saw that the case laws uh, were examples or kind of hypothetical stories to show us how to apply the commandments God had given. Right? They contain principles, and we are meant to extrapolate, right? to expand those principles out and apply them to a variety of situations. So Exodus 23, verse 4 and 5, one of these case laws said this, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Right, so even your enemy's donkey, Jesus says, right? Not just your friends, not just your relatives or those in your book club, but even the donkey of the one who hates you, right? If you see it fallen down under its burden, right? The donkey was traveling, had too much weight, and it just collapsed, right? If you would leave it there, it will die, and your enemy's stuff will probably will be stolen, right? But God's law says, even your enemy's donkey, the donkey of the one who hates you. Right? When it's in a tough spot, you must help it. Right? And we can reason then from the lesser to the greater. Right? If we're even supposed to help our enemy's donkey, if we see it on the side of the road, how much more must we help our enemy themselves, the one who hates us? So we see Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan is simply an application of this principle. And remember again, the question Jesus was asked was the question of who is my neighbor? Man trying to justify himself. Who is my neighbor? And so Jesus told that story. Right? If you even find even your enemy beaten up and bleeding on the side of the road, you love him. You be a neighbor to him. Proverbs 25, 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. He's thirsty, give him water to drink. So love for God, love for neighbor, even extending that love to your enemies, to those who hate you, is no new commandment. Right? The summary of God's law is love. As we say, right? your law is love, your gospel is peace. So then we ask, in what sense is this a new commandment? Jesus says, it is a new commandment I'm giving you. And the newness of it, I believe, is found in an application as a rule of life within a particular covenant community, one that Jesus was forming. Notice we are not merely told that we are to love, 
But Jesus says we are to love one another. Who is this one another? There is a community in view here. Who is this? It is the church. It is our fellow disciples. Jesus says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. Christ is inaugurating a new order, a new covenant people. Remember again that it was during this very meal, this very evening, when he instituted the Lord's Supper. One of the rites that would function to identify the people of Christ. So D.A. Carson writes, This commandment is presented as the marching order for the newly gathering messianic community, brought into existence by the redemption, long ago purposed by God himself. So the other thing that sets this command apart as new is the specific example of Christ. They are not simply to love one another, but Jesus says, you are to love one another as I have loved you. The standard of comparison is Jesus' love. Carson writes, just now exemplified in foot washing, but since the foot washing points to his death, these same disciples, but a few days later, would begin to appreciate a standard of love that, which they would explore throughout their pilgrimage. We are to love one another as Christ has loved us. Given the context, Carson argues Christ is referring to the foot washing, which again points to his death. Christ's own act of service for us and the fullest expression of Christ's self-sacrificial love, his willingness to lay down his very life. Now we've seen through John that the life of the Christian is to be the path of the cross. We've seen how Christians are, followed, are called to follow Christ by dying to themselves daily, picking up their cross and following him, fighting sin, putting it to death. We've seen how we are to imitate Christ uh, by bearing up under suffering, taking our crosses, so to speak, and imitating Christ by aiming at the glory of God and how we bear up under them. And so here now, Jesus gives us another specific application of how we are to imitate him. We must love one another as Christ has loved us. We must have love for the church just as Christ has loved the church. That is a high calling. For Christ gave celebrate this time of year. Christ left the glories of heaven for his church. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Christ humbled himself for his church.
Christ entered into his own creation for his church. Christ was born in a stable, a cave where animals were kept. He was placed in a manger for his church. Luke 2, verse 7 and following. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Christ came, and this was good news of great joy to all the people. For he came to be our Savior. And these humble circumstances of his birth were only the beginning of his humiliation. For in his great love, he would live a life of perfect obedience, fulfilling for us what we had failed to do and could not do for ourselves due to our sinful natures. And in his great love, he went deliberately to the cross. For as the angels had announced to the shepherds, this was why he came. He came to save, to free his people from the power and the penalty of sin, to reconcile us to God, to bring us peace with God, to turn us into the kinds of people who seek peace with one another. So Christ's example is now the example we've been given to follow. As he loved us, we are called to love one another. Christ's supreme example of his love for us was in his self-giving, his laying down of his life. So catch this. This is significant. If we would love each other as Christ has loved us, this means that we must live out and apply the gospel. How the church how the bride of Christ interacts with one another is to be characterized by the application of the love of Christ, the living out of the gospel. Right? We love to talk about the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done and is doing. Uh, we, we pride ourselves on making our church gospel-centered, our services gospel-centered, uh, wanting it to come through in everything that we do, from our prayers, our readings, our songs, uh, we aim to bring some element of the gospel out in all of our preaching, uh, trying to show how all of Scripture points to Christ in some way or another. But brothers and sisters, all of this will mean that we are nothing but rank hypocrites if we do not also live this out. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers to understand all mysteries and all knowledge, 
And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. If an objective observer could watch us for a time, could see us interact, could see how we live together, would they see the love of Christ in us? Would they conclude there is something special here? Something powerful? Something the world does not have but desperately needs? Consider again, we are a community formed by the grace of Christ. If you are in Christ and have been joined to his church, then mark this well, you are here because of the grace of Christ. Your brothers and sisters are here because of the grace of Christ. That is what has formed us, quite literally, a community formed by grace. And again, God has not been stingy with his grace. God does not measured out by the teaspoon, but we live in lavish grace. Grace by the bucketful. The floodgates of heaven have opened and are pouring grace upon us continually. This is how Christ has loved us. And so this is how we must love one another. May the world not see a church marked by bitterness, by slander and gossip. May the world not see two-faced living, grumbling, disputing, manipulating, cursing, and lying. May they not see backbiting, grudge-holding, or factionalism. But may the world see that we love one another. May they see people from whom grace flows in such a way that it would demonstrate that we are gospel people, Christ's people, forgiven people who forgive people, a true gospel community, a community of grace. For until the Lord returns or calls us home, we will all need to extend grace to one another. For until that day that we see him face to face and so are made like him, we are still going to struggle with indwelling sin. The church is not a gathering of perfect people, but we are all still in the process of growing to be more like Christ. None of us has yet arrived or will arrive in this lifetime, which means that we are going to sin against each other. We will disappoint each other, offend one another, 
let each other down. We will fail. We will sin. And that is true of all of us, your pastors, your deacons, and every single member. You have not joined a group of perfect people. Sorry to burst your bubble. And you are not a perfect person. As the old saying goes, if you ever found a perfect church, you better not join it, because you would ruin it. We are not perfect. We will still sin against each other. And this is why we need grace. For this is our calling to love like Christ. For this is what allows sinful people to live in real harmony with each other. What causes conflict? Sin. And Christ has a remedy for sin. His own blood. So when your brothers and sisters sin against you, love as Christ loved. Forgive as Christ forgave. Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Remember Christ told us the parable of the unforgiving servant? It was the story of a servant who owed his master 10,000 talents. Now, for some perspective, one talent was roughly equivalent to 20 years' wages for a laborer. 20 years worth of work could get you one talent. So 10,000 talents is roughly 200,000 years worth of annual wages. It is an utterly insurmountable debt. But this servant begged with his master to be patient and promised to pay the debt back. And his master, knowing that he never could, chose instead to simply forgive he took the burden of that debt upon himself. The master took those losses, and the servant was forgiven. But then that servant went out and found a fellow servant of his who owed him a hundred denarii. Now that's a hundred days' wages, right? It's not a tiny amount to owe someone three months' salary. But compared to what the first servant had been forgiven, this was minuscule. So the second servant begged him, be patient with me, and I will repay you. But the first servant refused and threw him in prison instead. When the other servants heard what he had done, they were distressed and went and told their master. And the master called that servant in and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant? as I had mercy on you. And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. The debt which we have been forgiven by God is infinitely greater than what anybody could ever owe to us. For we have sinned against God. We have sinned against our maker. God would have been just and righteous had he simply brought the sentence of condemnation down upon us. But he didn't. He took that burden on himself. He gave his own son 
who volunteered to take that hit in our place. We could never pay to God the debt that we owed. But in his grace and mercy, God forgave us at great cost to himself. And so if we are now to love one another as Christ has loved us, we must forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. Completely, fully, absolutely, and with no strings attached. We must extend to others the same grace we've received. When we are confronted with someone's sin, something they've done to us, and we are deciding how to respond, what must always be at the forefront of our minds is the insurmountable debt that our Father has forgiven for nearly all relational conflict occurs when we become more concerned about someone else's sins than we are about our own. The unforgiving servant had lost sight of the fact that he was a great debtor who had been forgiven a great debt. And so all he could think about was what his fellow servant owed to him. As forgiven people, we must be forgiving people. As people swimming daily in the oceans of grace from our Lord, we must extend that same grace. We must forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us, completely, freely, and absolutely. We must apply the gospel to our relationships. We must love as Christ has loved us, and to show ourselves to be a community. Next, we must share in Christ's affection for his people. Christ is not indifferent toward his bride, the church. Christ loves his church. Do you love what Christ loves? Now, there are people who will claim to love Christ, but who will say they're not interested in the church. Right? They want private religion or a, just a personal relationship, just them and Christ. They want to be close to Christ, but don't you dare mention the church to them. They don't like the church. Perhaps they even hate the church. They don't want anything to do with the church. The church is Christ's bride. Can you imagine going up to a man and telling him, you want to be great friends with him? You want to be close, to have deep and meaningful fellowship with him. And then you just hate that guy's wife. Can't stand to be around her. How well is that going to work out? Christ loves his bride. Christ loves his church. And so if you want to be his follower, his disciple, Jesus says one of the ways that the world will know you are his disciple is by how you love his church. How you love the other disciples. And so one of the things this means is that you don't get the option to simply check out from the church. Now it's true. Churches are full of sinners. 
It's true. Churches fail and sin and hurt people. It's true. Churches need a lot of work. But if you love Christ, if you grow in Christ's likeness, you must grow to love what he loves. If you recognize problems with the church, you don't get to simply excuse yourself and go fly solo. If you see problems with the church and you share the affection of Christ, then you will desire to be part of the solution. It's amazing how often people complain that the church was not welcoming enough, wasn't hospitable enough. And then you'll ask them, well, how many people did you invest in? How many people did you welcome into your home? In what ways did you help to leave the church by being more hospitable or into being more hospitable, more welcoming? How many people did you seek to greet and help to feel welcome? See, if you are to love the church as Christ loves the church, then you don't get to simply take a back seat and be a critic. You have to be part of the solution. If Christ's bride needs help, and you can see she needs help, then you must do what you can to help. If we would love one another as Christ has loved us, then we must recognize that we all have a responsibility to one another. That's what we call a culture discipleship. By this, all people will know that we are Christ's disciples if we love one another. Brothers and sisters, may this be our witness to a watching world. May we adorn our doctrine by living it out. May the world see a community of grace, a community of forgiveness. May they see people who are so overwhelmed by the grace that we have received that we would lavish that grace on others. May they see love and affection manifesting in a desire to do others good, to see each other grow in Christ's likeness, to care for each other, bear one another's burdens, love not merely in word, but in deed. May we love one another as Christ has loved us, and so show 